welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. All right, we're glad you're joining us as we continue our series in the book of Ephesians. We're in the third week of this series. We're calling it the story of God in Ephesians. And if you want to remember, recall what we've been talking about, Paul, what he does in this letter, the first half the first three chapters, chapters one, two, and three, he outlines this grand story of God, his sovereignty, his holiness, and the sacrificial love of Christ. And then what he does, he takes the second half of the letter, chapters four, five, and six, and he outlines how we should be living into this grand story, how our story fits into God's greater story as a response to God's glory. Now, normally when Paul writes a letter to a church, he has a particular purpose in mind. Just recall, if you flip through your New Testament, Paul has written like 13 of these books that we call our canon of Scripture. When he writes to the Philippians, his goal is to thank them for their generosity. When he writes to the Colossians, he's confronting some ungodly living in their midst. Uh, To the Corinthians, he's writing to settle some dispute. To the Romans, Paul is writing in order to prepare them for his personal visit. But Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, there is no stated specific reason for the letter. There's no customary personal greetings. There's no specific details in the entire letter that really gives you a sense of the purpose that's specific to the church in Ephesus. In fact, the earliest manuscripts of this letter, maybe a scroll that was written on parchment in the Greek language of that time, uh, it actually doesn't even have that little phrase at Ephesus to denote and specify that the letter is for specifically that church. And what that means to us today means that this letter that we are reading 2,000 years later after it was written By the Holy Spirit's power is a letter written to us. That Holy Spirit, would you personalize it to our context, for our challenges, to our limitations? And also, Lord, would you personalize it for me? Holy Spirit, speak to me. And I believe the Spirit wants to say something to us as a community here at CPC, but then also to you specifically. Lord, what are you trying to say to me? Now, after a short greeting in verses 1 to 2 in chapter 1, Paul launches into a special section of Scripture that we are continuing today, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. It's a single sentence of 202 Greek words, the longest in the New Testament. And in this beautiful section, Paul is extolling God's virtues and our benefits of being what Paul says again and again in this letter, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We're digging into a a beautiful and special section of scripture today. Now, last week, what we saw was how the Father has blessed us in Christ, how we are chosen and predestined and adopted as sons. And that means we were handpicked, not based on our beauty, thank goodness, but based on God's beauty, that God looks upon us with love out of the kindness of his heart and not based on anything that we have done or try to earn or try to gain his attention. That means as adopted sons, we are welcomed into God's forever family because 
of Christ's sacrifice. And because of that, we have the full rights as heirs as of God's limitless riches, as if we were truly a son of God, which we are, Paul says. And so what we're going to do, we're going to go verse by verse today and listen to the Spirit's voice. I'm going to invite you to say one more short prayer with me as we dig into God's word. Let's pray. God, you know how we come today, all of the joys and challenges. Lord, all of the expectations and hopes and all the fears we bring. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, since you know us better than we know ourselves, would you take these words I am about to speak and would you filter out any, any noise and filter out any distractions and even things I might say, but would you impress upon people's hearts and minds exactly, Spirit, what you want them to hear, to feel, and to think and to know that people may know who they are in you, in Christ, and then how to live this life with confidence and security in you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to look at verse 7 if you want to follow along. Because Paul opens here with this great statement. He says this in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood. I'm going to highlight that word redemption as we hit verse 7. Redemption means that God himself is paying a ransom. The price of sin which has satisfied his own holiness and his own sense of justice. And the price, the ransom price, was Jesus' own blood. I know that sounds strange to us 2,000 years later not part of this ancient Jewish sacrificial system or part of an ancient Greco-Roman culture where they sacrificed animals in order to, to demonstrate something to their unique gods. I know that seems strange, but what, what we're seeing here is Jesus is the fulfillment of this ancient practice, and he's going to give new meaning to it. So the price was Jesus' own blood. Now, prior to Jesus, those trying to please God believed they had to offer blood of a sacrificial animal, particularly every sacrificial lamb, just like the Hebrews did in their escape from slavery from Egypt. Remember this guy named Moses, okay, and the 10 plagues, which maybe you heard about or saw a movie about years ago. And so what happened was it was the blood of an innocent lamb that saved them from death. And every year, faithful Jews would commemorate in a very important ritual and festival at Passover with this same reenactment of the blood of a lamb. Now, this blood of the animal only offered temporary forgiveness. In fact, hear what Hebrews 10.4 says about that. It says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so the book of Hebrews, now knowing that Jesus has come, highlights that even though we Jews were doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years, it actually never could really take away our sins. What they needed was a final and lasting redemption, which was the blood of Jesus, who himself 
was the ransom, was the redemption. Now, the word to redeem, to redeem something means some means someone is going to buy back. So if you ever go to the store, and if you ever looked at these bottles and cans, there's a redemption value, right? And so in theory, if you bring this bottle or this can to a certain store or place, it, they will buy it back from you, and you'll get a whopping five cents or 10 cents from it. But you can make a pretty good living off of collecting all these things that they would be redeemed, right? The store is buying it back from you. Now, in ancient times, a victorious army would take the conquered soldiers from the enemy and make them into slaves, slaves for the army itself, slaves for the general workforce, right? Slaves maybe for a private estate. But if a good king was willing to pay a ransom price to buy the captives back, then they would be saved, or the word would be, they would be redeemed by a good king. And so Jesus says this about himself in Mark 10. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' own self-identity was not just to be a good person, a great leader, some esoteric spiritual guide, or one of many paths. He says, I had a particular job and mission to do, and it was for me to be a ransom for you because you needed redeeming out of slavery. This is Jesus' own self-understanding of his mission. And so what this means is that unbelievably God stoops down and not only buys us out of slavery to sin, but in that process offers his own life, his own blood, the scripture says. Why? In order to secure our freedom. From what? From sin, from brokenness, from death itself. And so here's the amazing thing. Though we, his creation, were just a speck compared to the vastness of the universe. We just sent up another, another telescope into space, so soon we'll be getting pictures back of the immenseness of our universe, and even as, as the, the millions of miles will be looking beyond our own solar system, it is just a speck that we're able to see. Our universe, as vast as it is, it contains billions of galaxies, I hear. And each of these galaxies contains 100 billion solar systems, I hear. And every one of these solar systems contain 100 billion planets or more. And we on this planet contain billions of people, and you're just one of them. And yet in the midst of the reality of that, you are more than a speck to God. He has his eyes on you. Psalm 139, I was reading it earlier this week, the Bible makes this radical claim through the king of David that in the mother's womb, God knit him together. Wow. I mean, God can find me in the midst of the billions of solar systems and the billions of planets and the billions of people he can find me? That's what the Bible says. But God in Christ has his eyes on you. So let's pause and let's just try to soak in Paul's own excitement. And this is just the first part of verse 7. We've been redeemed by his blood. We are chosen, adopted, and 
redeemed. Well, Paul doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 7, and he says why he did this. It's for the forgiveness of our trespasses, or another word, our sins. See, most of us don't like to think that we are sinners, right? That we need forgiveness. That's a very uncomfortable thought in modern day times for a lot of us. But if we didn't need forgiveness, that means that Jesus didn't need to take the cross, And so in Jesus' own mind, I think he's got a pretty good mind, he sees that you are stuck in sin and you needed to be bought out and forgiven for that sin. Jesus didn't need to take the cross if we weren't sinners. And so the simple gospel message goes something like this, that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us. He rescues us from judgment for sin our sin, and he rescues us into fellowship with him. And then he restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him, starting now, but with a promise for eternity. See, you might think you're a good person because your dog thinks you're amazing. Well, guess what? That doesn't make you or I any more special. We're sinners. We're broken. We think bad thoughts. We do bad actions. We have good intentions, but don't follow through. We're sinners. There's so much in the world that is beautiful, but so much in the world that is broken. There's a limitless, endless opportunity for you to do more. Do you ever feel that judgment sometimes? You start thinking about the poverty in the world and how much you're not doing. You could could always give more. Who's going to judge us in the end if we've given enough? Enough philanthropy, enough giving, enough forgiving. How much is enough, God? God says, it'll never be enough, so stop trying. Receive the gift. Welcome that Jesus himself took the ransom for you and bought you out of that cycle of never knowing if you're good enough, never knowing if I've done enough, never knowing, have I been philanthropic enough? Have I been forgiving enough? You will never know, but in Christ He says, you can stop trying. Perhaps by society standards, you are a good person. But Jesus says, no one is good, only God alone. Because when you put yourself into proximity with perfection, you become acutely aware of your deficits. And so every time we spend time with God, I hope it's comforting. Every time we spend time in God's word and spend time in his presence, maybe by singing and taking a walk in the beach and thinking about the goodness of God. I hope you're enjoying it, but there should even be some moment where you're struck with the awe of the greatness of God and the wonder of how could God love me, someone so imperfect, a sinner, that we confess our sins and say, Lord, forgive me for not living into the reality of who I really am. I'm chosen. I'm adopted. I'm in you. Why do I live for lesser things? Forgive me, Lord. Could that be part of your week this week? In the proximity of perfection, we become acutely aware of our deficits. And that's a good thing when you're in the presence of God. Because all you know what he's going to do when you confess your sins? He's going to lift you up. He's going to bless you. He's going to remind you you're forgiven and you're clean and restored. No one is good, only God alone. Paul says this in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. 
And so somehow in the mystery of God's economy, somehow on the cross, Jesus deflects God's rightful judgment away from us and onto himself. Does that make sense? This is what God did. This is what Jesus did as being a ransom from us. He deflects God's rightful judgment against brokenness and death and sinfulness away from us and onto himself. He says, I'll take the blame. I don't know if you ever heard or seen this movie of Hugh Grant. It's called About a Boy. And in the movie, there's this young boy named Marcus, and he's singing a solo in front of his entire school in the auditorium, and he's not a good singer, and he's not a popular kid. And this could have been me, I mean, growing up. And here's Marcus singing in front of the entire school, and he's completely embarrassed. He's starting to get jeered by his classmates and peers. They're making fun of him. They're mocking him. And he already has a tough life. He's already struggling as a young kid. And now here he is on stage in front of hundreds of people. Have you ever had a moment like this? And then out from the stage comes Hugh Grant with the guitar. And guess what? He can't sing either. (laughs) But he starts singing, killing me softly. With this, and he's doing terrible. And the kids start jeering him, and the kids start making fun of him, and they start mocking him. And he takes the attention away from Marcus and humiliates himself. Oh, that's just a little tiny glimpse of what Jesus does on the cross. He deflects the humiliation and the rightful judgment off of us and onto himself. Look at me, everyone. Blame me. And he gifts us with his own goodness. On the cross, Jesus takes our humiliation, our brokenness, our sinfulness, and he gifts us a portion of his glory. In fact, the Bible says that we receive Christ's righteousness, his perfection, his goodness, and it gets attributed to us in Christ. So that when God looks at you in Christ, he sees Christ's perfection, not your sin. I don't get it, but the Bible says it. So I'm going to believe it. Oh, what a gift. The ransom price was his own blood himself, deflecting the judgment away from us and onto himself. You see, Jesus knew there's a coming judgment and it would find all guilty unless someone would come and take the penalty of sin. And so he says, I'll go. Because forgiveness of our sins is only made possible. The destruction of death is only made possible. Living a life together in God's perfect forever family is only possible by the blood of Jesus Christ. A ransom needed to be paid. Paul's not even done. He keeps going in verse 7 and into verse 8. He says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, on us in all wisdom and insight. Now, I think Paul is giving a little testimony here. Maybe you grew up in a church. People gave testimonies telling about how God has worked in their lives through their own story. I think Paul perhaps is thinking how in his past life, he hated Christ. He hated Christians. He was the lead persecutor of people who went to church like us, threw them in the prison. Some of them were probably even killed. 
And irony of all ironies, Jesus says, I found my perfect instrument to spread the gospel. And Jesus, in his goodness and wisdom and grace, confronts Paul. And on this story, in this story in the book of Acts, while Paul's on the road to Damascus, Jesus, the risen Jesus, appears to Paul and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus took Paul's actions in life very personal. Didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting those Christians who are, who are worshiping me? He says, why are you persecuting me? And here's the reality. While Paul was still the enemy of Christ, God's kindness came to Paul. While Paul was still a sinner, bent on arresting and killing Christians, God's grace came to Paul. Paul was an arrogant Pharisee who thought his religious observance had saved him, that he's reading the Bible, which he did. He probably gave tithes and offerings, which he did. He, he taught the Bible. He spent time talking about the Bible. He thought, I'm a good person. But he wasn't, not according to God's economy. And yet God softens his heart, even while Paul was still an enemy, and he brought him in Christ. Paul experienced undeserved forgiveness, undeserved riches through the grace of the beloved, which Paul talks about in verse 6. The grace of the beloved. The shining uh, white light, this person he saw was the risen Jesus himself with all his glory and all his power. And Paul knows him as the beloved. That a loving God personally came to me and instead of destroying, destroying me like I deserved, he gifted me with grace. According to the riches of his, the beloved's grace. That's what Paul is experiencing. And now since Paul has experienced that grace in his own life, that own forgiveness, that own restoration, that own newness of life, he's saying, and that's available to you. You can have the same grace of the beloved. You can have the riches of his grace. In fact, the phrase riches of his grace is used five times by Paul in this one letter. And if you remember, we talked about Ephesians 1.18 a couple weeks ago. We'll go into detail in a couple more weeks. But Paul prays this for the people listening to him through this letter. He prays that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul's prayer for them and by the Holy Spirit to you and to me today is that our eyes would be enlightened, the eyes of our heart, that we'd have capacity in our heart for a newness that we had capacity in our minds to think a new thought. And this radical idea that the beloved Jesus Christ looks upon you, even if you're running away from him, he looks upon you with love. He's coming after you in love. That That he paid a ransom and he wants to tell you how much love was in that act of dying on a cross and rising again. And so much that Paul even uses a special word. He says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, you might know a little bit about lavished riches, right? Maybe we live in Carmel, right? So we know about lavished lifestyles. Yeah, I remember even last summer, I read somewhere, 
at Car Week, you know this little thing called Car Week that happens in our community, that just the top 10 cars, when you combine their value together when they were sold last year, grossed over $85 million. That's just 10 cars. That's a lot of Bibles, people. 10 cars, $85 million. Unbelievable. Now, look, I like to eat well as well, and this town is great for eating. In fact, just last night, my daughter made homemade, gluten-free, panko-crusted zucchini fries. And then what we did at the end, we sprinkled a little truffle salt on top, okay? Anyone like truffle salt? That stuff is expensive, I'll tell you. Not just regular salt, truffle salt. But you know what's really expensive? Real truffles. In fact, let me tell you a story. Just recently in Hong Kong, a chef in Hong Kong, he made a bid on a two-pound truffle. Two pounds. It's basically a giant mushroom. Want to guess its cost? $118,000 for two pounds. That's a lot per ounce for a truffle. That's lavished living. Cars, food, you name it. Lavish living surrounds us, but the Christian knows that our future heavenly home, which will be on a new heaven and new earth, it will be a city made with streets of gold. That we'll be walking in this new lavish heavenly home. But I want to make a point here. I actually think when we think about our new heavenly home that will be lavished with the riches of God, the reason that we're walking on streets of gold isn't because God wants to surround us with luxury. It's because we're walking on streets of gold that the gold that we value so much today in the future world will be just like stones we walk on. The God through the uh, John who wrote these words in Revelation about these streets of gold we'll be walking on. It wasn't so much about us living in the, the luxury of, of lavishness, but we'll be walking on the ordinary things like gold. They're like stones. Because really what we're lavished with is the love of God and the presence of God forever. And no more sickness and no more death and no more crying and no more pain. That the future home is actually filled with things that we think are so valuable now, but we'll know then it's just an ordinary thing. Things that we value now like gold and investment portfolios. Things that we value now like how many followers do we have and how much fame can we acquire. In our future home, it'll be like nothing. These will pale in comparison to the riches of God's grace. And Paul says all these things in Christ, it's according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Paul is encouraging us to gain some wisdom and to gain some insight. He's actually kind of telling us to calculate, use your mind and calculate the reality. The reality is that we will be spending eternity with God in heaven on a renewed earth with him, walking on things that we think are so valuable right now. And he's saying, I want you to have eyes to see today as if you're already living tomorrow. And if you have eyes today, what you'll see is that none of these things that we value so much ultimately matter outside of Christ. So why do we worry so much about these things? And can we put our trust in the God who is promising our future secure, the riches of his grace? 
And we can rest in this grace today because as we long for the fullness of that grace to be experienced in the future, we can appropriate that reality to right now. It's not just a future promise. It is a right now promise as well. Paul continues on in verse 9. He says this, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. There's a very special word in verse 9. It's his purpose. In fact, this is the second time that Paul uses this phrase. The first time is in verse 5, which we talked about last week, and now in verse 9. The NIV translation actually translates this as God's good pleasure. And I like that translation. I like it because I think it captures the nature of God's purpose, which is this, that God was pleased to make known this mystery about Christ being a ransom and lavishing us with his grace and love, that it was God's pleasure to make it known and plain to you. I'm telling you, it'd do nothing but excite me to know about the end of our time together that you would have the wisdom and insight that God has lavished his love on you by the ransom of the beloved Jesus. That as you do the calculations and start thinking about, wow, the span of eternity and the span of this universe, God has his eyes on me. Why wouldn't I want to live for him? Why wouldn't I want to say yes to him? And God was pleased to make known this mystery. Now listen, Valentine's Day is coming up, which I need to remind, especially some of the guys in the room, I'm looking at myself, so get ready, be prepared. If you're thinking you can just go on Amazon three days before for two-day prime shipping to get that special shirt or that special item, guess what? It's probably going to be stuck on a ship off the California coast for a few more weeks. So you better get prepared, guys, right? But imagine I get back together, and on Valentine's Day, I've actually made reservations and secured them. I bought roses before they go up, twice the price from the florist, right? And I've uh, not only that, but I, we had a nice dinner, and after eat the meal, presented a wonderful gift, and then I take a walk on the beach with my lovely wife, and I time it just right when the, 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 the moon is full, and it's a beautiful moment. Imagine I do all the right things, right, which I don't normally do. But imagine for once, I did something right on Valentine's. Day, okay? And then imagine my wife turns to me and says, honey, you don't have to do all of this. Thank you so much. And then in that moment, I respond, yeah, I did. I had to do it. Because if I didn't do it, you'd be mad at me. Now, I just want you to imagine, how do you think the sleeping arrangements would go that night, right? Not too well. I had to do it. Of course. See, what we all know as human beings is that true love acts out of not obligation, but desire. Paul says God's purpose is really his pleasure. He loves knowing that you might know that you're loved. It's his pleasure that you would know that in Christ you can have eternal security, a life beyond this life, that you are not no longer a slavery to sin and a slavery to death because Christ in his death takes on death itself and says you don't have to be someone who is separated from the love of God forever. You can be in me, Jesus says, in God's forever family of love. It was his pleasure to reveal this purpose. 
And then Paul wraps up by saying, and this was as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him who is Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. I think verse 10 summarizes the main theme of the book of Ephesians. If you don't remember anything about Ephesians, maybe remember this verse, which is this, to unite all things in heaven and on earth together in the Messiah Jesus. Paul is painting out this this amazing kind of universal truth, this picture of, of, of time and how things will end and how things will be wrapped up together in Christ. In fact, Paul uses this fancy Greek word, we'll put it on the screen, I can't even pronounce it, anakephalolomai, something like that. It's an amazing, confusing word that basically says that God is going to take these disparate things and gather them all up into one central thing. And in this verse, it means in Christ, not in Buddha, not in Muhammad, not in your good works, not in the beautiful nature and the roar of the ocean, not in the creation, but in the creator. You see, all these good efforts we make and all these things we're trying to do to save the planet, which are good things, all these things we're trying to do to make this world a better place, which are good things, unless they are in Christ, they're just going to end. So thanks for doing your part. See, God doesn't want things to end. You and I know somewhere inside us, and in fact, the book of Ecclesiastes said this, we highlighted this a few weeks ago, that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. God has placed eternity into each one of you. There's supposed to be a sense where we do go on forever, but it was meant not to be in death, but in life, and not in sin, but in beauty, and not in brokenness, but in healing in Christ. The ransom has been paid by his blood that you can be in his forever family. And anything you do on this planet now in him has lasting impact and meaning. Oh, friends, don't you want that? Not just for yourself, but for this world that we do want to make a better place. In him, everything you do matters. See, Paul is saying that all of reality, things in heaven and things on earth, things seen, things unseen, things from the past, things from the future, they find their meaning and purpose in only one person, Jesus Christ. Do you know him? And if you do know him, are you spending time with him? Take a walk on a beach with him. Spend time in his word with him. Spend time singing these songs about him and with him and for him. In Jesus, everything makes sense. You see, at the end of the New Testament is this book called Revelation written by this guy named John who got this vision. And he had this vision and heard Jesus say this in Revelation 22. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. Jesus is hinting at what Paul is saying here in Ephesus, that all these things will be gathered in me. Do you know him? He's the only one who can take your past and make sense out of it. He's the only one who can take your future and secure it for you. He's the only one who can take your pain and have it have some kind of purpose. He's the only one. No one else. Do you know him? Because Jesus is coming back to unite all things in heaven and on earth in him. He doesn't want you to be left behind 
without knowing that this is an opportunity for you to say yes. United with him and with all things good for eternity. Now, as you know, as you take a look at this section, if you have your Bibles open, this is verses 3 through 14, right in the middle of it. And this section of scripture, what Paul does is what every elementary student is told not to do as they're learning to write. And it is a giant run-on sentence of 202 Greek words with no punctuation and no spaces. That's what Paul does. He just keeps going and going and going and going. And then my wife would say, so that's where you get it from, Tim. Well, maybe. I'm just trying to be like Paul, honey, right? He just goes on and on and on and on. But I think it's not that he has bad grammar. I think it's that Paul is exploding with delight as he's trying to convey what God has done in just these short verses, he is overwhelmed with the goodness of God. Paul's run-on sentence then is not his incapacity for proper grammar. What it is, it's his propensity to praise God. What it is, it's it's Paul's delight in pointing to the Savior. What it is, it's his surrender to the Spirit. That's what's happening with this giant run-on sentence of 202 words that seem to have no end. Paul is so moved by the reality that he has been chosen and loved and predestined and blessed and graced and redeemed and forgiven and lavished with the riches by the beloved that he just can't stop himself. Oh, Lord, make me like Paul this week. Where I get a glimpse of your goodness that out of the billions of solar systems, each with billions of planets, you look upon me with love. Oh, may that just overflow. Yes, in our singing. Yes, in our thoughts. But may that overflow in the way you serve those in need and you give generously the gifts that God has given you and you speak boldly for those who are suffering. You see, when we capture the reality of God's presence and what he has done for us and in us in Christ, it leads to more than just things that we keep to ourselves. It overflows in our words and our deeds, in our thoughts, in our actions. Paul just couldn't get out of his mind that one day Jesus will return and unite all things in him. You know, uh, Late Pastor John Stott says this. He says, how narrow are our horizons? Easily and naturally, we slip into a preoccupation with our own petty little affairs. But we need to see time in the light of eternity and our present privileges and obligations in light of our past election and future perfection. You see, Paul was likely handcuffed to a Roman guard 24-7 while he's writing this letter. He didn't eat or sleep or go to the bathroom without being reminded of his captivity, his limitations, his brokenness, perhaps even being reminded of his unanswered prayers. That's the context for this letter. And so what Paul is doing, he's not inviting us to praise from a place of comfort, but from a context of difficulty. He shows us the way to believe even in the face of setbacks and shutdowns. 
He gets it. So what's our response to this future reality that has present implications that's accessible to us right now? We have been ransomed by God himself. It was his pleasure to do so because he looks upon you with love. Why would you not want to get to know this God? Why would you not want to live your whole life for him? It be only because we just don't quite capture the reality of what we have in Christ. And so, Lord, may we see our limitations and disappointments with a new perspective. So would you join with me in a prayer as we direct our attention back to God? As our worship team comes back up, let's take a moment of just silence. Oh, Lord, hear us in our silence as we ponder your beauty and your greatness. And Lord, we also, we confess our sins in this silence too. Ways that we have neglected the reality of our standing in you. So Lord, thank you for your promise that we confess our sins. You're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for that promise and thank you for the promise on the cross. You took care of it all. As we confess you as Jesus, Jesus as Lord of our lives, that somehow you deflect away the rightful wrath away from us and you pour into us your perfection and your righteousness. We don't understand how this is our constant reality, that we don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to keep having more sacrifices made. But Lord, thank you. And so as we sing, we sing as in a response and as a response to you giving your life for us, Jesus. Oh, thank you. Remind us this week all that you have done for us and all that you will do for us and that you remain in us, that we are secure in your grip of grace. Thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray with confidence these things. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.